Welcome to The Writer's Edge, a podcast exploring writing across disciplines, from the arts to the sciences and everything in between. We're coming to you from Sharknet number two in the NSU Writing Communication Center on the fourth floor of the Alvin Sherman Library in Davie, Florida. Today we're talking with Dr. Robert Speth, a professor with the NSU College of Pharmacy about ethics. So Bob, welcome and thank you for talking with us. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to work with you. It's been so delightful having you in the bioethics class to talk about communicating with a special interest in uh, communicating science and the history of communication. For those of you listening, Bob teaches a course about ethics, which we'll talk about, and it's part of the reasons we want to have on the podcast. I go in for just one day and talk a little bit about the ethics of communication. I really enjoy visiting that class and having conversations. I'm like, why don't we extend those conversations? So, Just first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of who you are, what you do here at NSU, uh, and even perhaps what your research focuses on? Okay, well, I have a PhD in pharmacology, but really I'm a neuropsychopharmacologist. I was hired to teach bioethics for our graduate program, uh, which started about the time that I came here. I graduated from Western Maryland College in Westminster, Maryland. It wasn't in Western Maryland, but it was named after the Western Maryland Railroad. And indeed, the Western Maryland Railroad, which was still in operation at the time, ran right through Westminster, Maryland. After I got my bachelor's degree majoring in both biology and psychology, I got a master's degree in physiological psychology at Connecticut College, and then went on to get a PhD at Vanderbilt University studying pharmacology and neuroscience. I then had the opportunity to do a postdoctoral research fellowship supported by the National Research Service Award at the University of Arizona with Hank Yamamura. And I have to say that one of the components of my bioethics class is mentoring. I was fortunate enough to have the best mentor in the world in my postdoctoral mentor, Hank Yamamura. He really took an interest in making sure that his fellows and students were successful He took a personal interest in us. I learned uh, how to eat Sichuan Chinese food uh, while I was a postdoc. He gave me such a great head start on my career that I somewhat tongue-in-cheek say, I am still coasting 40 years later because he gave my career such a good start. So can you tell us about where that mentorship has led you? What are you researching now? Right now, I'm primarily interested in research. I study the renin-angiotensin system, notorious for its ability to raise blood pressure and cause cardiovascular disease. But interestingly, we've been finding that the renin-angiotensin system is more than just blood pressure, that it has a lot to do with immunology and oxidative stress, and it's very active in the brain. So I'm focusing largely on the renin-angiotensin system in the brain and the possibility that it may be contributing to many neurodegenerative diseases, specifically Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. And my research right now is focused largely on trying to see if blockers of the renin-angiotensin system might be beneficial in preventing Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. And there's kind of a mix here because our brains do depend very heavily on the blood flow. And if you interfere with the blood flow by damaging the vascular system with too much angiotensin and too much high blood pressure, you're going to have some adverse neurological consequences. After my postdoc, I went to the Cleveland Clinic 
and started working on the renin angiotensin system at the Cleveland Clinic. That's the one that's actually in Cleveland. And then after five years there, I moved on to Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine, where I had a faculty position and was there for 19 years. So this is something that I'm really excited about. And I have some wonderful collaborators here. We've been building up a critical mass of researchers here at the university who are interested in Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. So I find myself in a wonderful, wonderful environment to be pursuing the things that I really find very fascinating with the possibility that I could make a very big difference in public health. To conduct that kind of research, you certainly needed to have ethics training, but how did that lead you to teaching the bioethics course here at MSU? To be honest with you, like many things in life, it was somewhat a matter of luck that I found myself inheriting a course that another faculty had started. And when he didn't get tenure, I kind of inherited this course. Initially, it was just a get to know the faculty course. And over the years, it's morphed into a responsible conduct of research course, which now NIH is requiring of all graduate programs and all programs that are training biomedical researchers. And, you know, to some extent, all of the professions are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of ethics and ethical training. So I've been teaching this course since 1991. And it's evolved a little bit to the point where I'm able to bring in some very talented individuals, not the least of which is Eric Mason. And I find that the course is a really delightful opportunity for me to get to know students, to challenge them on ethical principles, and hopefully give them a good start on their research careers or their professional careers, because increasingly we have master's students that are enrolled in a master's program that is a prerequisite for admission into pharmacy school. So what set you on this path? Did you have any early engagements with ethics on a professional level that made you aware of its importance to your field? So while I was at Washington State University, I was in the College of Veterinary Medicine, and an organization started up, the Society for Veterinary Medical Ethics. And I was a founding officer, became its president. I started the newsletter of the Society for Veterinary Medical Ethics. And it's been largely inspired by my interest in the animal rights movement and what I believe is horrendous misinformation and indeed maybe disinformation. We think of ourselves today in the age of disinformation and misinformation based on social media. Well, I can trace this back, and probably it goes back much further, to the animal rights movement and PETA and all their shenanigans and their deliberate misinformation and disinformation, saying that scientists were only in it for the money, that we were really only doing research because we enjoyed torturing animals. And it was a situation where there was something called the Animal Liberation Front, and the Animal Liberation Front came and liberated some animals, I think seven coyotes that they liberated from our research facility. Five of them showed up within a couple of weeks as roadkill, and they desecrated the office of one of our most respected researchers in the College of Veterinary Medicine. And the reason they targeted him was because he was studying Chediac Higashi disease. 
Chediac Higashi disease is a blood disorder that affects humans, but the best animal model for this disease is mink. So he was studying mink as an animal model for Chediac Higashi disease. And this guy from the Animal Liberation Front decided he was going to desecrate John's office because he didn't like the fact that he was doing research on mink. So that got me started and it morphed over towards my interest in writing. Because what I did is I wrote an essay for our local Moscow Pullman Daily News about why I thought what the animal rights people had done was horrendous and really amounted to a hate crime. And I still am of the opinion to this day that the animal rightists who make threats against biomedical researchers are really exercising hate crime. So the little essay got published in the local paper and people looked at it and said, oh, Bob, you've got to send it up to the Spokane spokesman. So I sent it to the Spokane spokesman and they published it full page with a cartoon associated with it in their Sunday edition. And then I got more people saying, oh, you've got to send it over to the Seattle Times. So I sent it to the Seattle Times. So what happened is that I had poked uh, animal rights people in the eye and they didn't like it at all. So next thing I know, I'm getting bombarded by editorials or letters to editors and personal letters. And even I, I, I did get a death threat once. It probably wasn't very serious, but what happened is I ended up getting into a kind of a, a little battle with the animal rights people who kept writing that I was, you know, one of those terrible animal researchers and trying to denigrate me. So I would write letters in response. Well, if you know anything about writing letters to the editors, usually there's a word limit. I've had to deal with word limits as low as 150 words, 250 words I'm very comfortable with. And then essays, uh, when you write an op-ed piece, they'll usually limit you to 400 to 600 words. So I had a lot to say and very few words to say it in. So I became incredibly proficient at writing concisely because I knew that if I didn't make the word limit, then my letter wasn't going to get published. So I developed what I believe is one of my better skills in making my arguments in very few words and writing very concisely. And part of that is the war on and that I'm currently engaged in. Which I definitely intend to ask you about later. This is how I got to feeling very comfortable as being a writer that I needed to be able to write concisely. And the reality is that when you want to write for an audience, you need to be able to write concisely. You don't want to just have so many words there on the page that the, the reader just gives up. You really need to be able to get your message across in very few words. And what amazed me is that I was able to get rid of so many excess words without losing the meaning of what I was trying to convey. So I try to convey that to my students when I read articles or papers that my students write. Invariably, I'm taking words out. And I like to think that I'm helping the students to become better writers. So one of the other things that is a, is a writing skill, and I'm sure Eric has mentioned this many times in, in his lectures, 
is the use of active verbs as opposed to passive verbs. So you would want to say, John washed the dishes rather than the dishes were washed by John because the active tense is much more powerful and it also uses less words. So these are some of the things I like to teach in my classes and when I'm uh, talking to my students. So this is proof of exactly why I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk to you, right? Like this range of experiences, kind of situations you've been in where doing science, doing research, but also engaging with the public Mm -hmm. and noting those debates, those characterizations back and forth about, oh, like they're just interested in in themselves, self-interest versus public interest. And I think you're a great example of someone who sees themselves as having a duty to communicate to make good arguments, to be, as uh, Quintilian, you know, the Roman order said, you know, the vir bonus decendi pertus, the, the good man speaking well, someone who's willing to stand up and make arguments, but also do it from an ethical perspective. Yes. Even just starting with the last thing you said about active verbs, I think people often look at science writing and look at it as sort of taking the person out of the equation, right? Mm-hmm saying that the test tube was poured into the pot or something, right? that passive constructions are associated more with science than other disciplines. But you're saying that there's a value, at least in making public arguments, about really being specific about who's doing what and what that thing being done is by using more active verbs. Is there a difference between the disciplinary writing done in science, of so say research reports, and the more public aspect of science? Well, I like to say in my class when I'm talking about communicating science, basically scientists have to be bilingual. We have one language that we use when we talk to our peers that has a lot of jargon, a lot of scientific, very technical terms. But on the other hand, we need to be able to communicate what we do to the public at large. So we have to also be able to put the work we do into language that the public can understand. And one of my mantras is that the public is who support us and make it possible for us to be able to do the research we love doing. So we have an obligation to the public to let them know what the return on their investment is, why us doing research is good for society and is helping them. And I feel very strongly that we need to do community outreach to let the public know exactly what we're doing and what the rationale is for what we're doing. I was doing a presentation for the Georgetown Biomedical Scholars, and I try to make my presentations interactive. And it's such a delight because once you get the students started talking, the conversation just flows so well, and you get so much interesting feedback. And one of the things that one of the fellows brought up was that in a department that she was in, the dean was evaluating faculty, not only based on how many research papers they published in biomedical journals, but also how effective of a social media presence they had to communicate their science to the public. And I thought, oh, that is a marvelous way to promote scientific information and to educate the public. Uh, Because one of the things that worries me so much, as I alluded to before, we are living in an age of misinformation and disinformation. And just let me clarify, misinformation 
is something that's wrong, that's being spread by people who don't know it's wrong. In contrast, we have disinformation where it's deliberately incorrect and the intention is to deceive and to disrupt people's lives. And there was a, an article in the New York Times, actually it goes back to 2020 now, titled Putin's Long War Against American Science. And I know it's nothing compared to what he's doing in Ukraine, but it shows how pathological Vladimir Putin is and has been. In this case, it was largely stealth disruptions and stealth disinformation campaigns. But his goal was to discredit American science and cause chaos in American society. And the irony is that he was promoting all the vaccine autism scares and denigrating vaccines through his deceptive public media campaigns with trolls or even people he was paying to put posts on social media. Well, at the same time within Russia, he was promoting vaccination to the point where he was making it mandatory. So it's a situation where we have a, a very dangerous threat to our society. In fact, I think our democracy is under attack right now because disinformation is so prevalent and so compellingly convincing to people that people who don't have good critical thinking skills or who are not getting the right information are getting sucked in to this false information and they're making life decisions that adversely affect them based on these deliberate disinformation campaigns. And one of the worst perpetrators of this is Vladimir Putin. I think that just reinforces the need to question who's benefiting from eroding trust in science. You know, what's the agenda? Certainly it's related to a whole bunch of other movements that may not just be about the science itself, that it's a larger if you will, attack on political institutions. In the context of something like a discussion about ethics, are there tools that we have at our disposal to resist this kind of manipulation, demagoguery? Are there tactics, strategies, things that you teach the students? Do we teach critical thinking in an effective way? Well, certainly any student in my class is going to get taught critical thinking skills, learning how to separate fact from fiction and I wish I had a, a wider outreach that I could reach more people to promote critical thinking skills. The challenge we have is that lies are so much more interesting than the truth. Now, the truth tends to be a little bit boring, whereas lies, you can imagine all kinds of incredible things. And these are the things that get people's attention. So I think there was a quote by Mark Twain, something to the effect of, a lie can circulate halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think it's so true. The power of lies is so incredibly powerful. You have the attributions to Hitler and Stalin of you tell a big lie, you tell it often enough, and if it's absurd enough, people will start believing it because they hear it so much and it's like, oh, they couldn't possibly have made up something so preposterous. And we're in the age now where people are getting lied to blatantly and the expectation is that, you know, if you say it often enough, 
that people are going to get confused and they're going to start believing these lies. And I will say that the research and rhetoric in communication certainly backs up this idea that our sort of enclaves, places where you kind of hear the same information over and over, whether that be you know, news sources or social media sites, you know, they certainly reinforce things in a way that makes them very difficult to dislodge in people's minds. That even when you offer people factual proof that negates, that contradicts things they already believe, it's actually very common for them just to keep believing it. That our beliefs are tied to our identities in a way that it's very hard to, to change people's minds. And so it is rather dismaying to know that it's not just about having the right information. Like you said, it has to be engaging in a way that lies often just find it easy to do. Well, an another thing is that a lot of these disinformation campaigns appeal to things that people want to believe. And there's a sort of a return to tribalism in that it's, it's us versus them. It's very disunifying. And obviously, when people are not united, they're not nearly as strong. And when they're fighting with each other, both sides are suffering casualties. And this is, unfortunately, one of the things that Putin's disinformation campaign is trying to do is trying to cause chaos and confusion and cause people to fight against one another within the United States. And it's obviously having a, a terrible toll right now. Our society has become so polarized. Again, I worry about the future of our democracy. I think that's a fair assessment that part of what makes democracies possible is give and take, a back and forth, seeking consensus, that there's a lot of things that go into that. And part of it is making good arguments from facts, things that we can agree on. And not that we'll agree on everything. There's certainly not a bright line between you know, different types of information. But I certainly think that you know more transparency about how we make decisions, the kind of information where we're getting it would be a good thing. Just as an example, just a few days ago, uh, Richard Corcoran, the commissioner of education in Florida, put out a press release saying that they've taken, I think it was like 28 books off the list of Florida math books that can be used. Yeah. And part of it was claiming that they included things that are not acceptable, critical race theory, common core standards that are not being followed anymore. So there was this broad claim. And then in the press release, it actually said something about their transparent process. But there were no examples given. There was no evidence. There was no like, here's exactly why we took this book out. Here's the passage. Here's the example. Here's the language. So transparency, I would think, would be a goal for everyone you know, seeking more ethical decision-making, right? Are there standards? Are there rules that would improve the process of democracy or just of transferring of information back and forth? Yeah. What Governor DeSantis is doing right now with our education system reminds me of the nightmarish Brave New World written, oh, 70 or 80 years ago. And basically, the children were fed propaganda from crib until forever, basically, and never had a chance to learn the truth other than what the government wanted to feed them. And I see the same type of thing here. Critical race theory tells the truth about history in the United States. And these people do not want to have the truth come out uh, because they don't want the children to be able to do critical thinking. So they're taking away the information that these children need in order to be able to have critical thinking skills. And I worry, you know, when these kids grow up, 
they're never going to be able to make good decisions uh, because they've never had the opportunity to learn the truth. All they know is what they've been force-fed through these censored presentations that they get. And again, it worries me. And, you know, this is a, a threat to our democracy if we don't have an educated electorate. Democracy depends on people being able to make wise decisions and to have all the information that they need to make decisions. And basically, people like DeSantis and some of the other red state governors are basically censoring the education system to prevent children from learning the true history. And again, it's a little bit like uh, George Orwell in 1984, uh, where they're constantly rewriting history to fit what they want people to be believing. Sure. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Huxley, Great New World, and 1984, because I remember Neil Postman, he's an American media theorist, said that those two books operate very differently, right? In one, people are controlled by inflicting pain, and the other, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. I feel like there is an issue where people take a lot of pleasure sometimes in the culture wars, in tribalism. Mm -hmm. They take pleasure in rejecting information and in claiming to do their own research. But there is some pain associated with learning that you're wrong, with learning that the people on the other side aren't evil. Mm -hmm. Like you said, that people kind of engage with lies, like they sort of enjoy the lies. And you know, that's hard to fight against, I think. Uh, very much so. The one assignment that you started last year, at least it was the first time I saw it, was the TikToks created by your students. And that seemed like a way to make it enjoyable to learn factual information. Yes. Are there things like that that you, know, you see as being something necessary for medical professionals to do nowadays? Do we have a, a duty to combat misinformation in engaging ways? Do you think of yourself as even needing to do activism? Like, is that a, a form of informational activism? Yeah, and unfortunately, that's not what we're trained to do. And I'm trying to change that a little bit by saying that, yeah, we want you to be good scientists and we want you to make discoveries. But increasingly, we want you to realize that you have a uh, obligation to educate the public about science and the truth. Because one of the things that is plaguing our society right now is that many politicians are trying to discredit science. We see it very painfully with the masks and vaccinations with COVID-19, but there's been a, a long history. You know, we have the climate change deniers. We have people who refuse to believe in evolution. And there's many other examples where politics have been opposed to scientific knowledge. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I have trouble fathoming how these people can justify their behavior in deliberately denying the truth for a, a belief that they're determined to impose on others. I just, I just don't get it. I think it can be hard to realize that you're trying to engage in debate with someone who's playing by very different rules, right? That part of what makes academic discipline so strong in many ways is that sense of a discourse community that follows a certain set of rules, right? That has certain methods that are allowed, that develops a sense of professional ethics about how information can be gathered, how it can be interpreted, that all of this helps to make those conversations that research productive, you know, generative. 
I know that we introduce students through the city program to ethics, starting mm -hmm. as early as their composition classes. They actually have to take city training as part of that. And I know every discipline takes, I think, some aspect of that program or has a kind of specialized set of concerns that they go through. Can you talk a little bit about the resources that students and or faculty have to make better ethical decisions? Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the city training because that CITI training run out of the University of Miami is an excellent program for teaching ethics, research ethics. They also have modules on animal care, human subjects. So in my bioethics class, I like to think that I'm using multimodal teaching. So I require the students in my bioethics class to also complete the city training for research conduct in addition to the three hours per week that we have for discussions of each of the modules that I have in the textbook that I use, Scientific Integrity. In addition, I have them do a presentation to the class. They take ownership of one of the modules and do a PowerPoint presentation. And I work with them beforehand. Before they can present to the class, they have to present to me and I want to make sure that the information they're presenting is accurate. As far as outside resources beyond the, the bioethics class, I know that over in biology, they teach an ethics class, and I'm pretty sure they've got some ethics training in psychology. Certainly, anytime you're a medical professional or a, any type of a professional, you have to learn ethics training even if it's just things like HIPAA, mm -hmm. the uh, Health Insurance uh, Privacy Act, that you want to make sure that you're not divulging someone's personal information. So we have both clinical ethics and research ethics, and pretty much all of the professional schools have an ethics component. In the College of Pharmacy for the PharmD students, there's a professionalism course that has several modules that are emphasizing ethics and ethical behavior for the students when they become pharmacists. So I would like to see some outgrowth for more ethics from the standpoint of ethics. Certainly philosophy departments have always had a very strong ethical component. I think you're right that philosophy and, as I will always interject, rhetoric has often had a concern with ethics, communication programs, writing programs, philosophy programs, like these are all people mm -hmm. who deal with the basic ethics of responding to other people's language, to educating, to persuading. And that always involves some thought about how do I characterize other people's arguments? How do I respond? You know, do I mischaracterize them to make them easier to argue against, which mm -hmm. certainly can happen. Uh, and rhetoric often comes out as the enemy in some ways, as the unethical thing that people do. And so that's unfortunate because rhetoric is really, as I tell your students and try to tell other people, Rhetoric doesn't say, do the bad thing. It says, here are your options. It helps you understand the situation that you're in and the context and what will persuade people. But it doesn't actually encourage you to do things that are unethical. But I think it helps you understand why people respond to things. And as you said, people are very prepared nowadays, ready to respond to unethical information, disinformation. So that, that is certainly discouraging. And as you said, all these programs have ethical components because we acknowledge the importance of communication across the curriculum in terms of making sure that we're doing things ethically. Well, and, you know, I appreciate the fact that you bring into my class a perspective on rhetoric. I'd like to think of rhetoric as like fire. 
you know, fire does a whole lot of good, but when it's in the wrong hands, it can do a lot of damage. So if you can appreciate the legitimate ethical use of rhetoric, then it's a tool that we should have in our toolbox to communicate the truth. Definitely. And for people thinking about becoming more ethical, I guess, is there any way to know or way to check whether your decisions are being ethical? Like, is there something in your toolbox that gives you a way to measure the ethics of your actions to understand better the consequences or nature of our choices? I usually start out somewhat simplistically and talk about the three major sins, uh, which would be falsification, fabrication, and plagiarism. And basically try to communicate to the students how fatal this can be to their careers. I come in and I'm 99.9% .9 certain that all of the students who come into the class want to do good. They want to be good people. They want to contribute to society. And somewhere along the way, they get into a bind and they find themselves needing to cut corners, take a shortcut, and then sometimes do something that they know is wrong, but out of desperation. And I try to convey to them that once they cross that line, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to cross back over into being legitimate. And I hate to use fear as a teaching tool, but I do try to convey to them that once you have committed fraud, say you've plagiarized and published a paper that has plagiarism, or you've made up some data and put it into a research paper or a grant proposal, you are always going to have to be looking over your back, worried that someone is going to uncover your fraud, and then all of the work that you've done, your entire life's work, is going to be tarnished by the fact that people are going to say, well, I can't trust this person's work because we have a clear example here of fraudulent behavior, dishonest behavior. And I try to convey to them that they shouldn't put themselves in such a difficult situation because they're, they're going to be looking over their shoulder their entire career, worried that somebody's going to find out what they've done and then all their work, and they work very hard, is going to be scarred now by this one, one or more situations of dishonest behavior. And I also try to emphasize the fact that one of the most important tools we have in our toolbox as scientists is trust of the public. If the public doesn't trust us, then what we're doing is not going to help the public because they're not going to believe us. We're going to be Cassandra's. We may know the right answer, but if people don't trust us, they're not going to pay any attention to us. So we've got to be able to show that we're trustworthy. And part of being trustworthy is not cheating, not cutting corners. So I try to convey that in as positive a manner as possible to the students. It's a little bit appealing to their ability to be frightened by what I'm saying, but hopefully the fact that I'm trying to emphasize the fact that they can contribute to the trustworthiness of science 
would be the more important motivator of them to behave in an ethical manner. I think that's important for students to hear. And I know we can have some qualms about using fear, but I myself often think that things like shame, while they don't feel good in the moment, they are an important aspect of helping us make good decisions. You know, that kind of a sense of community where we feel a duty to the community to act in a certain way, like those are powerful motivators. And so I can see where someone thinking about the consequences of their actions is a useful tool for making ethical decisions. If it can't be transparent, if it can't be made public, if people finding out would would harm your sense of who you are and your identity, maybe that is a good voice to listen to. Well, you know, hopefully it's just something that they will remember and it may increase their resistance to taking a shortcut and being willing to say, you know, I'm not going to do this because it would be wrong and I'd rather not get that promotion or not get that grant rather than cheat in order to get it. It has been just really interesting talking to you about this and I think this helps students and faculty better understand the importance of not just talking to our students about ethics, but as you say, sort of mentoring, modeling ethical decisions and thought processes and actions. So thank you for coming here and talking with us about it. I feel like as a writing instructor, I do have to ask you about your war on and just to kind of get a sense of <laughs> thank you. why do you have a war against and like what has this conjunction ever done to you? Okay, well, I have to say, I, I was delighted with your title, Professor Pathologizes Polysyndeton. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it sent me to Mr. Google trying to figure out what a polysyndeton is. And I discovered that and is probably the most frequently used polysyndeton, but or is also in there. So yeah, my, my war on and started when I started recognizing that I was guilty of writing run-on sentences. And and is such an easy way to make run-on sentences. So I started just saying, do I really need all these ands? And I started rereading what I wrote. And invariably, when I write, I have a lot of ands. And, you know, it's just so natural to put a lot of ands in your writing. So what I've been doing is I've been going back and looking at all the ands I have in my writing and trying to get rid of them. And I'd say I'm hitting about 60 or 70% success rate in getting rid of ands in my writing. And I have some tips for getting rid of ands. I substitute other words. Uh, you can say so, or then, or while, or which, plus, I've even been known to use apostrophe n, or you can convert a verb to having an ing. So rather than and showed, you could say showing. The other benefit of that is that you've gotten rid of one word now. So you've gotten rid of an excess word. And I have found that often, when I delete ands, I end up decreasing the number of words in my writing. So the other thing is sometimes you can simply delete the word and, or one of the best ways to not use and is to just put a period there and start a new sentence. So I feel like I've made some very great improvements in my writing by going back 
and getting rid of the excessive ands. So I wrote down a couple of little notes here, some examples. So one is, are you committed to the tissueizer LT and do not want the bead mill? And I can change that to, are you committed to the tissueizer LT not wanting the bead mill? So I got rid of an extra word. Actually, I think I got rid of two words by taking out the and, and I still haven't changed the meaning of my sentence. And then I was reading something yesterday in my honors reading seminar. We did the book Bad Blood, and it's talking about the Theranos scandal, primarily Elizabeth Holmes, who was the president of Theranos. But she also had a co-conspirator named Balwani, and I was reading about the write-up about his trial. So I'm just going to read to you, and I'm going to emphasize all the ands. So. Belwani's trial follows Holmes' four-month trial and conspiracy and wire fraud conviction, and he is facing the same charges that he and Holmes defrauded investors and patients with bogus blood testing technology they knew didn't work, in part by lying about Theranos deals with pharmaceutical companies and the military. So we've got six ands in that sentence. So I went and said, okay, what can I do to get rid of the excessive ands? So this is how I rephrased it. Belwani's trial follows Holmes' four-month trial leading to her conviction for conspiracy and wire fraud. So I've got one and. Belwani faces the same charges that they defrauded investors and patients. That's my second and with bogus blood testing technology they knew didn't work, in part by lying about Theranos deals with pharmaceutical companies and the military. So I went from six ands to three ands, and I was able to get rid of one word. Usually I can get rid of more than that. But again, I think that we find it too easy to use the word and, and I think it's much better writing if you try to minimize the use of and. So that's kind of my motivation for the war on the word and. However, there is one exception to my war on the word and, and that is because I do see myself as a wannabe poet. And one of the things I've noticed about the poetry that I love is so many verses start with the word and. And when you start a sentence with the word and, it has an incredible power. And we saw this, okay? So that is my one exception to my war on the word and. I love to start sentences with the word and. So anyway, that's a little bit of uh, my, my, my little war on the word and. I, I like to think it improves my writing, but I would like to have some objective evaluations of this approach that I'm taking. So I will say that I think any time that we ask students to look closely at how their sentences are crafted, how they're putting information together, the relationships between phrases and words, I think that can only lead hopefully to better writing. So I think that can only help. And I'll send you to Google again, you know, give you two more terms that I think help illuminate <laughs> both the power of doing this in scientific text, but also the reason you might like it in poetry is we have two concepts called 
parataxis and hypotaxis. And basically it talks about the relationship between phrases and words where you're either putting stuff side by side equally like this and this and this and this, or hypotaxis where you're expressing some hierarchy, some relation, this because of this, this despite that. So I think when you're revising your scientific text, let's say, or informational text, what you're doing is you're trying to be more explicit about those relationships, right? About mm-hmm. what happened and why, like what caused what, you know, what's the connection between this jury trial and the conviction, right? Like this led to that. So you're doing hypotaxis. You're trying to be explicit about those connections, about relationships between ideas. In poetry, I think you want it to be more able to be interpreted in different ways. So you might be trying to diminish those explicit relationships, put stuff side by side and let people make sense of it themselves to evoke imagery and say this and this and this. This can maybe a strategic way to get the reader involved in making those connections. So parataxis and hypotaxis would be my professional opinion there. Okay. I'm going to be looking those up and adding them to my uh, vocabulary. So again, Bob, just thank you so much for talking with us. I hope this illuminates some people's views on what it means to do science ethically, but also just to be a professional who takes the consequences of their actions and speech and sees themselves not just as a private individual who sort of works you know, for a company or a university, but as a potentially public figure, someone who contributes to public discourse. So thank you for just broadening our perspective about that. Well, thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. It's been such a delight having you in the class, and I'm delighted that I have the opportunity to do something to help you in your efforts to improve communication and the skills of students to communicate either by writing or verbal or in whatever manner. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. We thank you all for tuning in to this episode of The Writer's Edge, and we hope you tune in next time. You can submit your own podcast to be featured on ours. And you can even submit your own stories about the Writing Center or any questions that you may have. If you'd like more information about the Writing Center itself, visit our website at nova.edu forward slash WCC. You can also reach out to us at WCC at nova.edu or 954-262-4644. Thank you again for tuning into the Writer's Edge, and we'll be back on your airwaves real soon.